how do you go from humble beginnings in New Zealand out into the big wide world of North America, taking your startup? That people are looking for some a particular type of investment to for them to sort of imagine what what the contact center world looks like in North America is is hard. They they can't see it. Raising a family, as well as getting bullied by your boss, as well as seeing the Berlin Wall fall down and going there to privatize those countries. Some people do, and some people have been in bullying environments and they just shake it off and they don't notice it. For me, it affects my performance. This is an interesting one. One role where they, that I did work with a bully who would not let me leave the office to go for my kids' uh, music performances because he thought that which was showing the wrong commitment. And I'd be there from 7 in the morning till 9 or 10 o'clock at night and... When I left, somebody said, you know, it's been so hard working for you because you're such a machine. If you've ever felt that you're fearful of pursuing a dream that seems too, almost too big to achieve, this one's for you. All right, well, let's okay. see what happens. Okay. So we're starting the podcast <laughs> just now. Okay. Um, and I think people are always curious about who they're going to go on the journey with for the next hour. So how would you sort of, encapsulate what you're doing at the moment so what i'm doing at the moment is i'm a co-founder of a business called Aportio, which uses emerging technologies currently of course that's ai to improve the way people work and improve outcomes for customers so our focus right now is on using ai in the customer services world to improve the way incoming conversations are handled by agents, hmm. reducing some of the real mundane parts of their job so they can focus on actually getting things right. And I think most people will have experienced a customer services center where they they wait two or two, three hours on the phone, or the e- when you send them emails, it comes back and says it'll be a month before we respond. Um, in the States, that's, that's just amplified. And so the, there's, there's a huge issue here, and everyone's talking about AI fixing this. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And so we've been working on using the technology, you know, the mix of old technology and new technology with a very specific purpose of taking work, particularly the mundane work out of the agent's day, so that they can answer questions better, faster, and you get your answers. You're not waiting two hours on the phone because an agent's busy doing mm-hmm. mundane admin stuff. And by agent, you mean real estate agent? No, so this would be a, a customer service agent. So somebody's right. answering the phone or answering your emails. Um, yeah, so so agents or in, in an IT sense, it's your help desk engineer that is busy actually doing a lot of mundane stuff instead of fixing your problem that you're probably quite emotional about because you can't you're in the middle of trying to do a podcast and you can't get onto your equipment right <laughs> i'm inaccessible don't send me any emails there's no ai chatbot gonna talk to you okay interesting well i yeah. think as well just to rewind a little bit back yeah. we just to understand you where were okay. you born where are you from so i am canadian i was born in a place called edmonton it's a very very cold place in alberta Um, I spent most of my life in Calgary, though, which is right beside the Rockies. It's a a beautiful, beautiful part of the world um, with with uh, and Calgary itself is pretty. But the Rocky Mountains are are if you've ever been there or if you've not been there, go, because I I was just gone back for a few weeks and, Mm -hmm. and did the drive from Calgary to Vancouver. And it's I I've forgotten how beautiful it was, but it is a stunning part of the world. So I I, I grew up in Calgary. Went to school and university there. Was it uh, easy? Were you good at school? I was, yeah. Yeah, you're the nerd? Did they pick <laughs> on the teacher's nerd. pet or what? No, I, 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 I'm not sure if I was the nerd. So I was, I, was the one that, I was the one that got through the exams but didn't, you know, I'm sure there's somebody called me a nerd. I'm sure there's many people that called me a nerd. But I was also out doing stuff. And um, so I, I, was not, um, I was not your typical nerd. Yeah, did you yeah. did you do sports or did you dance or did you? Oh do gosh, I did or? some sport. Oh yeah, I, I did. I, I wasn't great at it, but I did it. Hey, I was even a cheerleader for a year. Oh what? Yeah, <laughs> jeez, here I am meeting the cheerleader. So I've seen it in the movie. I've never experienced it. Huh? Cheerleader. Yeah. So can you, like I'm not going to ask you to do a routine or anything. But what would you do as a cheerleader? Oh, it was. Well, I wish we got into the championships one year. Um, and, oh. and yeah, so it was sort of it, it's gymnastics basically. Wow. 
gymnastics to music within a group. Did yeah. you so na- nationals? Is it or oh, it was or? it was an it was the provincial competition cool. that we got into. Yeah, which is we were that was big. I was in intermediate school then, so Jeez. that was pretty great. What do you what do you win if you win? Do you remember that's the, that's the <gasps> Oh, I'm sure we got you a ribbon a or something ago, amazing, right? <laughs> something amazing like a, a ribbon or a little trophy that you put on. I mean, you know, schools they, that, that's what they give you is, yeah. and, but that's enough because it's about you know being there and being part of the team and winning and. Was it before participation medals? Oh, no, <laughs> no. Oh, oh, we got, yeah. No, we, we definitely, there was, in every sport, Yeah, I, I usually got the participation medal. Oh, watch yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, <laughs> I wasn't, um, I, I had fun in sport, but I was never a very strong sports person. You're too busy studying, so you can yeah, have Possibly, or, or I, I, smart at high hand-eye coordination was just never there. <laughs> fair, fair. So <laughs> what about, like, so you, you did the cheerleading, yeah. and then you did the study, and then you went to, what did you study? Accounting? Or? Yeah, I studied, um, I had a business degree, I did accounting with a minor in psychology. Random. Do, so do you find people interesting? About I do, yeah. So I love, I love, learning about people watching them talking to them understanding what they do what makes them tick hmm. um and certainly i mean in senior management roles i think i use psychology more than i use my accounting training because it's all about motivating people right and, and when you're in, in management and communicating with them so if you have a true interest in how people are motivated and how they listen and learn then that that gives you much better chance of being a strong manager yeah, that makes sense. I, I call psychologists wounded healers. <laughs> possibly, yeah. possibly. Yeah, I couldn't quite. I couldn't quite get myself to go into psychology, thinking that what, what if I got it wrong? Because so, there's so many different theories on how to help people, and every class mm. I took was was quite different, and they were approaching it a different way. I thought, what if I choose the wrong one for the wrong person, and I really messed them up. Um, and then I went to finance and realized that actually the way I can really mess somebody up is mess with their money. Yeah, <laughs> that really messes with people's minds. Yeah, um, but <laughs> I've not tried that. But I've noticed. I, 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 we, you haven't tried messing with people's money. <laughs> I haven't tried messing with people's money to mess with their minds. But yeah, but yeah, that that whole the, the background in that interest in people, the, the psychology, the sociology stuff that I did was has been was was formative. I think in in the way I did my job as an accountant, and then like people and understanding them looking at balance sheets how do they where did the <laughs> oh, well balance sheets are only a reflection of what people did right okay go on yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so so it's it's the it, it's a numerical representation of the of of the joint effort of everybody in a business hmm. and so you can i can see what happened because i look at the i can see the balance sheet and go i know what happened i know what people did and I know how you know motivating them is about looking at their commissions um, if they're a salesperson, and 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 you know how do I use financial management to motivate people to do the things that we want them to do? So it's mm. it is um, numbers are not numbers. I, I you know I I don't I use a calculator to add basic things. I could probably do it in my head, but I don't anymore because the number is just the number because I only see it as a representation of something rather than, than being than being a number in itself. I'm wondering is on that, like I don't know if you could give an examples of like you're you're scanning some form of, you know, financial component of a business and it indicates a behavioral issue or a, a leaking boat or is there things that you like, if you were to scan through it, you notice and you're like, oh, this is what's going wrong? Yeah, certainly once you, you know, as you get to understand a business, and I was, um, I was in a business some years ago, which we sold, and I later went back to help them when they were short of a CFO, um, between CFOs. One job was to pick and find a new CFO, but it was, I went in there and I went, I knew this company well because I was a part owner of it, and so I really knew the business. And a couple of years later, I went in and went. I looked at their budget. and I went, "This isn't going to work. It doesn't work. I can see this here that that's not going to work because that connection doesn't work with that way. You can't have that many salespeople and that revenue, or you can't have you know you're never going to deliver that revenue with that many." delivery people it's just you can quite quickly look at the just the basic numbers once you've when you understand a business those two don't match so we need to put more people in this 
segment to do that, or we have too many people in sales, not enough people in delivery. It's quite, it becomes quite clear when you know your numbers. Yeah. yeah. Is it like yeah. something where you're ever surprised or shocked about like when you, cause the numbers don't lie, they say. And I've heard of a lot of instances where uh, someone gave too much, I guess, trust and oversight to an individual and they capitalized on that and then they're up shit creek without a paddle. Did you ever I see a red flag or something where you were shocked by the actual numbers themselves? This is random. I never thought we'd talk no, about No, no, I didn't. Look, I think I New Zealand in general, it's a small country. I think there's... Um, you know, most places I've been, it's all honesty. You know, you might you might be somebody as trying to pad the truth for their own benefit, right? Mm-hmm. You know that. Um, it, it, probably the the more of it was around like a salesperson telling me that they're going to make these numbers next month. And and once you get to know them, you you know, so we had sort of five sales leaders in one of the business. And then one one I every time he said a number, I would have it. The other one, <laughs> he said a number, I would double it. And, you know, so it's just kind of figuring out how people think and how risk averse they are. But I don't think I was, once you got to know it, and I mean, the first couple of times they came in with half the number that they said they were, it was a little bit of a surprise, but <laughs> but it was more, it wasn't about dishonesty. It was about a confidence general sense of <laughs> confidence that I will make this, this number and um, they don't. Interesting. Well, on that sales side of things, do you, do you even notice like certain attributes that are conducive with good selling or... Um, I think it probably depends on what you're selling. Oh, yeah. And so nothing beats a real interest in people. So, you know, ha- having um, the ability to communicate and listen to your customers, I don't think that changes regardless of what you're selling. You have to be able to understand what your customers, whether you directly relate to them or not, or it's a it's a mass product, you still have to go understand what the market wants. So those listening skills, I think, are probably the most important piece of any sales role. After that, they probably differ a little bit. Um, some, you know, some people do well, some, some what we call coin-operated people, people that respond to the commission completely commission break. yeah though that's one type of salesperson and they're really good in some places other people are more motivated by a team result and therefore and a coin operated type of commission structure is never going to work for those people or if that's what you want don't hire those people hire people that are team players so it really depends it depends a little bit on the on what you're selling to figure out exactly which which of the attributes but yeah like i said listening is the one piece being good listener being really wanting to know what the person's telling you is probably a key part of any sales role yeah it makes sense I, I never know where these things are going to go. I, I used to um, be a sales trainer and it was all commission. So you yeah. make money off their success and yeah. you've got to sell as well. So I was just curious how, how we got there. But um, all right, so you got the uni, you got the accounting, you're curious about people and the mum, numbers tell you things about people. Yeah. What about, uh, where did you go? What was your first Which gig? Is good. So, uh, uh, and and accounting firms, the only way to get a CA in Canada was going to an accounting firm. You couldn't do what you do here and go into a company and get your CA. So that's my excuse for going to an accounting firm. <laughs> I don't have an excuse for staying there for 10 years, but about three years after I, years. I stayed in an accounting firm for 10 years. But um, three years after I started, I transferred to London from Calgary. Um, and uh, shortly after I arrived, the wall fell in Eastern Europe. And somebody asked me at an event, about my background, I said, well, I speak Hungarian because my parents are Hungarian. He said, you know, we'll get you on a plane. Can you go work in our Budapest office for a while? Um, so that was that was quite that was quite an experience. But, it, you know, just being open to doing different things. I said, yeah, now let's let's do this. And I thought I'd go for a couple of weeks. I ended up staying nearly a year. Mm. Um, but and in that year, because it was just after the wall, wall fell, it was probably the most turbulent year in Hungary's um, commercial or economic history mm. in terms of, of going from almost completely um, government-owned companies to almost all privatized. And part of the work I was doing there was privatization. So I, pro- I spent the next sort of seven years 
doing first in Hungary and then later in other countries, working through translators to try to get a business result, whether, whether it be the mass privatization program where they were selling off the ass, the, the government assets to the population through shares. First time that they'd ever owned shares, many of them, because a lot of them had been born within the communist regimes. Uh, so the people that had understood private ownership were were retired mainly. Hmm. And so you, this this whole concept of this ownership and what the shares meant was, was all very new. And so we were working on the privatization programs or we were working on programs where a Western investor wanted, was looking to buy buy something, um, buy an asset in Eastern Europe. And those were the probably the bigger parts of our work where, where we, it was just a pure M&A with a, with a um, Western investor. But understanding the the way these cultures work the way the accounting work the way the 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 um when people said something what it meant and i think the the fact that my i started in hungary where i spoke the language helped me a lot when i was working with translators in the other countries because i knew sometimes the problem wasn't a translation problem it was actually an understanding problem they were thinking so differently from what the way we were thinking about business hmm. that when they came back with an answer it didn't mean what we thought it did so i'd often have to dig a little bit deeper through the translator and the translator just something like oh you asked that question already it's sort of like i need to understand more because that that i kind of i understand the words of the answer but those don't make sense in the context of what i'm asking because because he's coming at it from a different place what what, what did you sort of notice like because i've traveled to i think 17 countries now yeah they all sort of speak human, but they're a little different. Like, I don't need to know their language to sort of, oh, you mean this, but then they do it in an unusual way and they frame it in a unique way. Maybe not unusual is the word, but what, what did you sort of, what are the cultural differences that you sort of were unfamiliar with, like, you know, mm. or that you had to adjust? So I think it's, growing up in a communist regime was very different than what growing up in a, a Western open culture um things like as a different honesty was a different definition honesty for, was a different it was definition. a different different definition because if, if you think about it if you don't believe in the government then the rules that they place on you are not morally important right and some of them were just ridiculous so you couldn't trade you know black market trading was not considered dishonest in eastern europe because it was the way you did things because you the rules were stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, whenever we went to Hungary, my my uncle would find us, um, you know, great food salamis and stuff that you could only buy on the black market because um, they were mainly exported. And he would great buy food tsunamis. Did you say? What oh, did no, you so, so he would buy salami for us. Oh, he buy yeah. salami on the black market. Yeah, on the black market, but he had to buy it you're on the criminal. black market. You're a criminal. Because, yeah, you're a criminal. Our definition would be a criminal, but there, it was okay. You know, it was it was it was the right thing to do because the rules were stupid, right? Um, and and so so that was the that was the first thing. The, the law is not really necessarily because we respect laws. You know, this is you might disagree with some things, but on the whole, you kind of respect the whole system of law in in Western countries, so in Canada, apparently the most honest race in the world. Um, the law was the law, and that was it. And you, the way to change the law was to lobby. You, you don't just not follow the law. Um, and so that was that was one piece that that I found, and you could understand it. You could understand exactly why they were doing things that seemed like normal things. They were against the law, but but hey, that's that was silly. So that was one piece, and the other the other piece was a lot of the school training was you had to answer a question when asked, you couldn't say, I don't know. And this was across a lot of the countries I went to, and I wouldn't say everyone, a number of them. And so in schools, people would say, the teacher would ask a question, you'd have to, even if it was the wrong answer, you had to come up with an answer. Hmm. And um, the, so when you're trying to do due diligence, when you're acquiring a company, (laughs) you have to be aware that they're gonna answer whether they know the answer or not. (laughs) <laughs> they wouldn't lie, but they'd tell you an answer. They'd make up an answer <laughs> because that was their training. So, you, again, you had to understand that piece. Um, and I guess possibly the most politically difficult thing for me, I was in 
um, Romania and Transylvania. And Transylvania used to be part of Hungary. But I wasn't allowed to speak Hungarian to the staff um, because at that time that was against the law to speak Hungarian in, pub, in, in, a, in a corporate setting. So they would have been fired if I spoke to them in Hungarian. So I had to work through a translator, despite the fact that we clearly could understand each other in Hungarian. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but the, and, and a lot, you know, I, I don't know what it's like now, but it, it was still, so that, that was, that was an, that was an issue for, for the Hungarians in Transylvania at the time. So that's probably the only political point I'll make. Yeah, <laughs> safe. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, um, so, so there's, it's just it, they they just were brought up, and the people I was dealing with, almost their whole lives were in this regime, mm. um, and and I guess it was, I feel sorry for the people that sort of missed out on that next phase. So, some of my friends in Hungary, for example, their their kids are doing fantastically. They're very smart. They've had Western education, or, or education was actually quite good in Eastern Europe. But they went and did jobs in Western Europe. They have a little bit of money. Um, so their lives are quite different than their parents' lives, and their parents just kind of missed out on they 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 weren't um, they were not old enough to have experienced life before the regime, but they didn't they haven't seen the benefits of the post regime, uh, and so they they're not they their their lifestyles are are possibly worse than they were under the communist regime because they everyone was sort of equal under those regimes where there's no equality in a yeah. in a there's obviously no equality in a um, capitalist regime or, yeah, or, no. or less equality in a, yeah in a maybe don't regime. go down that bend yeah we won't go down there but uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's uh, another place you might not want to go down is um there's a guy from your country jordan peterson some people like some people don't i like him um and he was just talking about in a regime like that it requires people to lie in order to maintain it and then that the challenge is like say nazi germany uh, i think it was a third of the population were informants for the government mm. so you think within your own family and then you, you play this little game so it's interesting that the law wasn't the law and that you sort of confirmed it in a different way yeah um so okay you're there and you're translating when you don't have to translate yeah and and and, and so but I, I did a lot of travel around through all of eastern europe and and some of it is was very interesting sometimes it was a four-star hotel sometimes it was cockroaches running across the table because it wasn't a four-star hotel <laughs> um so it, it was and some of them were more safe than others i mean we had we had a trip into the behind the ural mountains in russia on a train mm. Um, on the way there, we were very cautious. We didn't know, quite know what to do, um, but we did put a stick in the door so that nobody could open the couchette during the night. Um, on the way back, we were a little bit more lucky because we were doing privatization of a company there, and and the CEO of the company talked to the guards, and they took care of us. So there was there's no chance for any <laughs> to be unsafe when when um, you know the guards sometimes were the ones were the perpetrators, but not if you paid them. I mean, they were they would take care of you. So there there was. You, yeah, but honesty in that. You got to play the game. <laughs> you play There's the honesty game. in the corruption, <laughs> because you know what everyone wants and how it works. Then it's, yeah. it's honest. Yeah. So we felt much safer on the way back than on the way there. So th- that was um, that was particularly. But it, but we were. In, it was a really beautiful country again. It was. Um, it did get to minus fifty some days though and i've been in canada where minus 30 happened but minus 50 was a whole new yeah, ball game yeah, of cold. cold yeah it was it was it was very cold Jeez. and we were privatizing a bakery of all things it was one bakery for a town of two million people so it was a big bakery yeah it is a big bakery <laughs> wow good old monopolies eh? <laughs> okay so so you did that for yeah. a while and then you know eventually you're like oh I'm new zealand Wouldn't well I- um that kind of came along because one of the guys i met in hungary <laughs> is oh. a kiwi um, oh yeah one and- of the guys you met what you in a polyamorous well no no <laughs> no <laughs> sorry not that interesting um so there was uh there were it was Primarily guys that went to Eastern Europe, but there was there was one particularly good looking one um, who happened to be a Kiwi. Oh yeah, and then you're like, let's go to home. <laughs> we we actually physically flipped a coin to say whether we'd go to Canada or New Zealand. Oof! What were you hoping for? I died in New Zealand, so I didn't mind. Oh well, then why are we flipping the coin? Come on, I call bullshit. Yeah. No, well, yeah, maybe maybe he he rigged the. 
and knowing that, that I would be okay. It, it was possibly a double-headed coin, knowing that I wouldn't <laughs> complain. I don't know. Um, but I, I, the deal was we come to New Zealand for a year. If we like it, we stay for five. And mm. after five, then we anything goes, right? Um, by at the end of the first year, I loved it. I mean, it, it's obviously a beautiful country. I love the beach. And, um, you know, I grew up in landlocked country. So coming to here, which is completely ocean locked <laughs> by comparison it was it was great so i loved that um by the time five years hit i had two kids um so wow. so you married so, this handsome man i did marry the handsome oh, man. oh bless yeah. beautiful um, um so yeah. go on uh, so you come here and then the what, what what did was it hard getting a job was it easy getting a job you know there's not much communism here for you to privatize no no so just basic going back to my my accounting skills and just I, I worked through some of the big companies so I started at Fletcher's um, Fletcher Energy when it was you know I came from Calgary I walked in and said I'm from Calgary they say you must know oil and gas I said yeah I must do um, <laughs> and they gave me the job uh, <laughs> and so getting out of the accounting firms was was the step I did when I came over here but um, and and did just general accounting, account management uh, roles, so and worked my way up through a number of companies. I, I've been at Tip Top. I've been at uh, oh, you know, that was fun. Yeah, Tip Top. Tip Top. We had uh, an ice cream um, in uh, ice cream freezer in every meeting room. Monday morning meetings, we had to either try ours or a competitor's product. This was a really rough job. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and of course, the the staff shop where you know if something so the packaging broke, we would have to buy the stuff from the staff shop, and I'd get like buckets of Hagen Dust ice cream for a buck. Wow! My kids were young at the time. I was favorite mum on the street. Yeah. Um, because we always had ice cream in the house, and it was always it was the good stuff. Because yeah. <laughs> top tier. Top tier. Top tier stuff. Just the packaging had broken or something had gone wrong with the with the packaging. So, but we also we also got to try. There was this mad scientist at the time that was running the R&D department and he he came up with some of the most I mean he came up with things like Big Bicky and and um, the Memphis meltdowns and all, all those kind of things and, and the technology to make those happen but he was always coming up with some interesting thing to try and hmm. some were good some didn't really make it to market because <laughs> they were a good attempt but not so good um, wow. but they were never going to make it in the market so um, that was fun um What's the secret to tasting ice cream? Did they teach what's you? The secret? And is it like a, or what's his process for there discovery? Is, there is no process. Do you like it or not? Yeah. Oh, um, is that it? Yeah. For, for, in, in terms of new flavors, um, there was, we did have to also do help out with acute, um, you know, quality assurance stuff. So we would have to try once a week. I would, I would, everybody was rostered on to try the ice cream and you would just check the creaminess. That was, a, that was a creaminess test. So they would, they'd do a couple of different. So, um, the creaminess. The creaminess I'm just, yeah. I'm, just, uh, I'm finding this fascinating. <laughs> I didn't think I'd talk about ice cream. I just pushed that button and it stops sometimes. You didn't miss anything. It just okay. goes for 30 minutes. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, uh, we had to check because tip tops famous for the, for the, the churn that they do for the churn um, they're the famous churn. for the churn they are first time i've heard that so i live under because a rock. you don't yeah you live under a rock because you didn't know that that's the creaminess in the ice cream but it's because their ice cream is so creamy because of the way they churn it and you can't like you've been signed one of those things what are the whatever it is where you can't talk about it or what's the no, secret the secret is the attention they put on on the churn there's other ice cream companies in my view don't put as much attention on the length of time of that huh. they are churning the ice cream and that's that's why tip top ice cream was tip creamier top. Yeah, yeah. It's top yeah yeah so you just churn it longer creamier Okay. And I'm sure this R&D guy <laughs> is sitting there going, oh, my God, Susan, you so undersold what I do. <laughs> I can stare for a long time. Like, yeah. I could even get a machine to do it. Um, okay. All right. And then you, you talked off air a little bit about um, an experience where, you know, you don't have to name or shame or anything, but it wasn't as tip top and yeah so there was yeah so 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 i guess it's um if you you have broad career you're you're going to come across better managers and worse managers and (laughs) and and, pc way of saying it yeah pc way of saying it and 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 look i i would there's definitely bullying in my history um it was it was um, pretty unpleasant uh 
I I guess I'm better at spotting it now and I know that I just don't work well under that environment. Some people do and some people have been in bullying environments and they just shake it off and they don't notice it. For me, it affects my performance. So I know that I need to do a lot of diligence on on the manager and their behavior and, and uh, before I take a, a role again because uh, it just doesn't work for me to, to work for a bully. Although I think I mentioned that um, the, no matter what, my manager was like, and sometimes even the worst ones I learned from because I learned what I don't want to be like and, and, and what it feels like to be the recipient of that kind of behavior. And that I never, I don't just don't want to impose that on anybody else. And I can't say I'm far from perfect manager and I have my good days and bad days and my moods, but, but, you know, I, I, if, if I ever see myself getting to the point where I'm so stressed that it, that I would behave badly, I'd get myself out of that situation and, and make sure I'm not, you know, and I think it's from learning from those people that I didn't enjoy working for, mm. that I am more aware of it in my own management style. Is, is there a cons to the approach in a sense of like, you're, some people believe, you know, as a leader, you should never let them see you bleed. I, I don't agree with that. No, I don't agree with that either. That, and and that's, that's certainly something I learned at this one one role where they, that I did work with a bully who would, not let me leave the office to go through my kids' uh, music performances because he thought that would sh- was showing the wrong commitment. And I'd be there from 7 in the morning till 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And when I left, somebody said, you know, it's been so hard working for you because you're such a machine. We don't feel we can have lo- a life because you don't. Mm. Oh, well, that's yeah. <laughs> we won't do that again mm. um, because and, and and showing the humanness is really important. They should show. Yes, they will show. They know if I'm in a. I think everybody knows when I'm in a bad mood. I did ask somebody once, "How can you tell when I'm upset about something?" Mm. And they said, "You go completely silent, and your typing gets louder." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think I'm. I, I I don't try. I don't try to push my mood onto people but I but I'm, I'm not completely good at I, I don't try to completely hide my moods either but I certainly try want to make sure I'm not taking it out on anybody which is the difference between I think a bully and somebody that is there's a little more self-aware self-aware bully <laughs> self-aware bully <laughs> I know I'm doing it and why I, I <laughs> and I know I need to stop <laughs> there's there's um an interesting story I heard of a, a CEO that um would leave at five, but it, they caught him in the park, uh, car park, taking calls because he wanted to create the perception and make it okay for other people to leave at five. And I never really thought about, like, because I love work. I mean, if I have a day holiday, I'm like, oh, this is a bit long. I get back to work. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, I'm just uh, exhausted. I'm like, okay, I'll listen to the body. I just won't do any work today. Um, I prefer the flexibility of, like, you know, friends, uh, they're... they're a close person in life with serious health conditions and i was like oh well i'm just not gonna work and we'll eat breakfast together and we'll look you know i'll be there for you and yeah that's to me that's more about life but you talked about you know 7 a.m till 9 p.m and you know missing the musicals and whatnot what do you th- what do you think of work-life balance Right now, I probably don't have a lot of balance <laughs> yeah. uh, because it's, i'm uh, a, i have a startup <laughs> but like I, I, a bit dif- I guess it is a little bit different when it's a startup and it's your company I've chosen to do this is that I love every minute of what I do and I do have a lot of balance. I can do things whenever I want. and But there's a lot of it. There's more than 40 hours a week of, of work yeah. to do in a startup. So, but but yeah, I do, I, I balance it. Um, my family is still incredibly important. My, my kids finally moved out. Um, finally. Finally moved out. Did not that I, I did not. Oh, no, Are no. You happy? No, I think it's good. They're, they're, it's great. They found a place. It was more I mean, prices were so high they came home for a little while. Um, and but but they they've got their own place. But you know they're still an incredibly important part of my life. I will drop things. Even a call. I was on a call the other day, and other than customer calls, when I go, I have to, you know, if it's important. Um, but if I want to call with my colleagues and my son's called me a second time, I will pick up the phone. I'll say, look, you just hold on. He's called me two, two times now. Yeah, so yeah. there's the something, time, some, yeah. yeah, the two times means that, that there's something they want and, and that's fine. So I, I think I do have, 
I think I have a balance because, um, you know, my kids have grown up. I don't have that commitment that you know, that I did earlier in my life. When 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 the, the kids are young, you you have to react when they need something, not when you necessarily want something. So mm. I think I did all right. I did. I took a number of years off over the so I, I worked full time, but then I took a couple of years off. I took a you know a year off with the first one, second one, and took another couple of years off, and then then in between I took another year off between roles and and spent time being the at home mom. Um, and I think the kids appreciated the balance. I think they're they they're proud of telling people that their mom's a startup has a tech startup <laughs> and so, they, so they, they're definitely proud of me they both help me in various ways one does a little more marketing the other one was actually coaching me on speaking the other day on, oh. on, on public speaking Bomb. Well, um, she you did know. well you're killing it <laughs> I'll let them know <laughs> um, but but it's um, you know, you know so, so I think I have balance I think there were times in my life I didn't have enough balance but I knew where my priorities were and if if it got in the way of of the family, which is what was my priority, then I did take steps to change. Um, so, um, possibly, you know, the thing I probably didn't have as much time for my friends. So, but many of my friends also were professional women or men, mm. and so we found time to catch up, and we never took offense if somebody didn't have time if someone's busy we, we we got it and we catch up when we can and yeah okay and all's good well on the on the professional woman part because you know i essentially just go through systematically call people so i don't so then i try not to have biases so then i have just the actual demographic of the, the environment yeah so there's not too many women that come in um so i always try to talk about the the balancing of motherhood and the pursuit of career and also how to be a woman in a male dominated world in some regards, you know, or in a business and, and being a leader and feeling, you know, am I being too bitchy or am I being too masculine or whatever? So what's your sort of advice for being a professional woman and also a mother? So a couple of key things. I think when I, early in my career, I, I had this view that if I, if I ignore the fact that there are people treat women differently than men, then everything will be fine. I'll just ignore it. I'll, the glass ceiling won't exist for me, so I will just keep working on it. Okay. The glass ceiling does exist. <laughs> <laughs> and after hitting my head on it a few times, it was it, and probably not until these words around unconscious bias came out that I really understood hmm. that it isn't about me ignoring it. It's about me understanding that a lot of it is unconscious bias and stay away from the people with conscious bias but <laughs> self-aware but, bullies yeah self-aware bullies but the unconscious bias it was is what gets you mm. and so learning more about how unconscious bias works helped me a lot and accepting that it exists not that it's right um, and I shouldn't change my aspirations because it exists but there are times when I have to do something differently um, I was on a call um, just yesterday with a VC, and, and there's there's a really good TED talk about how the way VCs ask questions of women and men, hmm. um, and it is a, it, it's all about the unconscious bias. And I was very much, um, I, I very much felt that what they were talking about the TED talk was applying to me in that situation, and I'm not sure I got it right. I get defensive because this is sort of an attack rather than a question, and so they 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 ask you to prove something whereas men they'll often ask to um, assume that they know it and just ask them to to explain it oh, yeah okay. um and and so i did get defensive and after afterthought oh, i did it i did exactly what i know not to do because the person's asking me a question in a way i need to flip it so it's just it's just constantly being aware of that you do need to deal with unconscious bias in the workplace um I, I I regularly tell people about a couple of conferences I went to last year in Canada. One um, one was in Toronto called Collision. I'll, I'll name it because it's the exemplar. 48% women mm. at a tech conference of 38,000 people. Yeah, that's... That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, I went to one in Washington for another um, organization, which wasn't that. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> and, and so... And, and, and so I'm things are moving forward so i think that's great 
Mm. Um, particularly, um, this was this. There was a lot of focus on early stage and startup companies, and that and that. And that's what was most um, interesting about it is that how many early stage um, companies are led by women. Mm. Um, still a battle, obviously. The funding. There's all sorts of funding, d- different ver- um, versions of stats on funding men versus women startups, but. Um, but it's important to understand that there's a problem. I guess when it comes to being a mother and having a career, I think it's about getting going into an organization where that is that is acceptable um, or encouraged. So when I left, um, when I left one organization where I wasn't allowed to go <laughs> see the kids' place, I went to another one where um, the CEO um, was having um, a, a child in a couple of months. And so he was very focused on spending time with his child, which meant that we both left the office at five o'clock. I went home, spent time with the kids. I would still need to get back online, but put the kids to bed and got back online. So I still do the same number of hours work. And I remember somebody that was at work till seven or eight o'clock because their kids were older said, Susan, you're emailing at this time of night. I'm, I'm expected to be here. So I'm like, no, no, no. You're expected to go home when you're ready to go home. Um, and I will, you know, I, I'm doing it now because I left at five. And now I have to catch up to mm-hmm. where you've got to. Um, this was before the, the the day of when you got in your email footer I'm only emailing you when the time's right for me. You don't have to answer. There's some there's some firms that some of the oh, county firms that have that. Yeah, there's okay. county firms that have have those little footers going. I'm working. I I work at the time that works for me. Um, you 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 answer <laughs> the click. time. You <laughs> you yeah. You answer the time that works for you. Anyway, really very PC, but it's actually it, it's if you can be in an organization where that's yeah, that's okay. acceptable. Um, that's the way that's the way I worked. Is that, that I did work. Um, I, I spent made sure I had time for the kids, but um, but which often meant that after the kids were in bed, I was working, which is fine. Yeah, you've done um, forty one minutes of solid podcasting, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I I'm in two minds about it. It's like on one hand, you know, I have a whole lot of blokes on the show, and I don't like ask them what's it like to be a bloke. You know what I mean? And uh, like and uh, but then I'm also thinking there's people listening to this that are torn between the pursuit of their career and being a mother or are feeling the unconscious biases in an organization. So I'm I'm yeah. t- like, because you're just a business person. Like, you know what I mean? Like, who cares a fuck if you're a woman? Like, yeah. But then there's also people that actually need someone to be an example of success for them. So... Yeah, I find it hard. I was on a on a seminar, um, a tech women seminar um, recently where... I won't say which country because that doesn't help either. <laughs> Where there's there's a lot of talk about how hard it is to be a woman in business, and it is. I think mean, there's there's no question, but it's hard to be a man in business as well. There's there's a there's a pressure, you know. There's there's still that you're the you know you're the key breadwinner is still a societal bias towards men. Mm. So I had pressure. In fact, we got kicked out of Play Center because I was a working mom. You got kicked out of a place because you're a working working mom. mom. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, because they didn't think that was right for the. <laughs> um, I did cry all the way home, and then when I got home, I realized <laughs> this is just this is just rubbish. But you know, um, but for me, the pressure was, why do I stay in work? Whereas, you know, men often have roles that they don't want to be in. But there's so much pressure on them not to leave their roles. So, so I think we have different pressures. But, but you're right. Um, the possibly the pressures on men are better known, and therefore talking about the pressures on women um, and being open about them is helpful. But, but we we've got our own challenges. And being a mum and a, um, mm. and, and and having a career is is hard it's you you're constantly torn you constantly got pressure on why are you working for heaven's sake you should be home with your kids or um or you know or at work why are you going home you know it's so so it's, it's <laughs> you're fucked you're in the yeah it, it doesn't matter i remember <laughs> the when i first started um at one of my roles the the um owner of the company said so what's it like being a working mom I said, I don't know what's it like me. I'm working dad. Mm. <laughs> sort of like it's the same, right? Yeah. Um, it should be the same. Um, it's not there yet, but, you know, well, there's always hope. 
Well, and it's about, I mean, and, and you might have in the back of your mind, like, as soon as you talk about it, someone pounces on you or you read it in the news. Like, yeah. oh, there's differences. Everyone just freaks the fuck out. I'm, uh, no one has to agree with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, it is, I, one thing I do worry about, like, I think about the extremes of, like, oh, you know, stay at home. Why are you working? That was, like, you know, prior generation. Now there's a, a flip in the other ways where it's, like, almost the abandonment of motherhood almost as though career of everything and how lonely that is at 50 you know when everyone else has got family and they're busy and mm. you're just like well what the fuck am i gonna do and then that's when grandkids coming yeah but do do you have any advice for i guess a young woman that's torn between wanting to be a mother and that professional career and if there's a cost for either or you can have both or I don't know. We'll move off the woman topics. So. Yeah. No, I think you can have both. You just have to, it's, there's a lot of juggling to do it. Um, you can be tired, <laughs> um, but you, you want to figure out how you balance both because they both, they've both been really important in my life. My kids are, are re, they are the most important thing, but they, but part of that is that they're proud of me being a, a professional, you know, a business person. So, um, I, I guess I think about my mom gave up work and on and off she did she was, had a couple of degrees um, and on, but on and off she went to work but most of the time was at home and I thought when I was a teenager I, w- I was actually struggling to have a really good conversation with her because she'd been at home for many years and and her focus was around the home and and I said I, w- I wasn't going to be that. <laughs> so my kids have conversations about business and with hmm. me. And <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, this is um. Let's move off you just being a particular group of person. Yeah. And actually talk about your skills. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what are sort of the the lessons or journeys you've had in starting this and and raise? Did you raise a lot of capital for it? You said board. Mm-hmm. So you must have yeah. got some money from somewhere. Um, and well, we it's mainly friends and family. So we're we're pretty much bootstrapped. Um, oh, we geez. had a little bit of friends and family um, that that helped us at the beginning, um, and they're How still with us. How do you pitch us. it to them? Are you like, uh, <laughs> please? <laughs> well, like, um, this is the yeah, value prop. Yeah, th- this was the value prop. Um, I think it's harder than we thought at the time, but I think they they kind of had the grain of salt. They just sort of went yeah if it's good it's good so we were we were cautious about what we asked for in terms of what they could afford if Mm. and that this was a punt but we had but we i I feel very strong responsibility to make sure that we're successful for those people that support us at the beginning Mm. so a lot you know that i don't think there's a day when i think i'm going to give up but but the, but in the back of my in the back of my mind, there's the yeah I owe you know these people mm. trusted me and I'm and and I and I want to do this, but I also want to make sure that I get do the right thing for them, whatever that might be. So so if we exit at some point and that works, or we continue and, and raise capital. So we will raise capital eventually, I hope. Um, but right now we're we're focused on sale on sales so yeah. and that's the best way to raise capital right is to yeah, get your sales buy up. your shit yeah <laughs> prove that people buy what we do yeah. and then and then raise capital and then mm. you're raising capital at the right the right way i think obviously being in new zealand there are limitations on the capital you can raise there's um the there's a limitation on what people can see in the world is how big you know the market that we're after is a global market new zealand market is very small for what we do but the global market is actually enormous and it's hard to see from down here um particular you know angel investor groups that 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 people are looking for some a particular type of investment to for them to sort of imagine what what the contact center world looks like in North America is is hard. They they can't see it. Um, I can see it because I've done a lot of research on it, and I can't you know I can share some of that research, but I can't really share the whole big picture with them. Whereas when I go to North America, they get they know exactly what the contact center market looks like. So, it's it, it it's a little bit hard to raise capital here uh, mm. for a business that its market's primarily North America or in, in Europe. Uh, so we're. But the best thing to do in any startup is to get sales. Yeah. And so, so if you can, if you can work, you know, you work, keep working at, um, 
to the point where you can get enough sales to demonstrate your product. Um, we really need North American sales now to get North American investors, and, and we're getting there. Um, wow. How so. do you get sales over there? I've never cr- sold across the thing. Yeah. So there's a num- number of things we've done. So we do have a, a salesperson in North America now. We have one oh, based yeah. in Toronto. Um, so our first sale, our first professional salesperson was hired in Toronto. So he's been with us just over three months and he's starting to make good progress. We also have partners that ha- already have a market there. And so we're going through them to uh, to leverage basically their sales team. Um, and so we, we integrate with their products. Um, so w- one of our key partners does voice. We do text-based analysis. They do voice-based analysis. We put the two products together and we have quite a compelling solution for contact centers that um, that has clearly understands um, both voice and written uh, communication between customers. Hmm. So that um, so partners is important to get from from little New Zealand. Uh, <laughs> the accent helps you until they're like the, the the accent does help me. The, the <laughs> and it's a lot stronger than it used to be. I've spent a lot of time over the last year traveling in North America. So um, the people have commented quite often in the past year or so that my accent's got a lot stronger um, because I've been back there a lot. Uh, but it's, yeah, so, so there's some, um, where are you going with this? It's, um, we have bootstrapped, either, you know, friends, family, and, and bootstrapped since. So I do, I do roles on the side. I do some CFO roles, which... Um, which oh, keeps you float. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to do what you got to do. you got to do what you got to do. And some of them have been, um, you know, really interesting roles and, um, you know, hoping I helped. And then usually I, part of the job is to go find the next CFO. Um, hmm. So it's... Um, I'll be made to replace yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is fine because I want to replace myself, right? Because yeah. I... Okay. I, I, I I, I, I want to get back to my business. So, I, you know, I sign up for, say, six months. And part of that six months is go find someone huh. to replace you. That's a key part of it. So figure out what the role really t- really needs and then go replace yourself. So um, that's, that's an interesting product, actually, isn't it? Because if you think about, like, most people struggle to recruit and then train and develop and they don't really understand the job description. Mm-hmm. Someone comes and they think it's that. Because I thought about, like... um. They, they teach you in marketing, you teach, you solve the first problem for free and then the next problem and then you think about the rest of them. And I was like, a lot of, with agencies, like if you if you get really good at getting them business, eventually they're going to need to hire someone. Yeah. Otherwise they'll drop you because they're just overwhelmed with work. Yeah. So I was like, well, what about like firing, hiring the key people to go on the organization so you continue the stages? So how did you get into that like why you just like fuck i have this i need money let's just <laughs> oh network so you know started with my network and just went uh and said you know uh you know, just ask around and you know it was it was uh, it was over beer my my business partner it was having beer with somebody that we're trying to sell to actually and he said look i can't even talk to you right now i'm a cfo just quit and and my business partner Scott said, "I've got a solution for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone that's a really good CFO." Um, and so, you know, so that, that's where that's where it kind of started. It is that um, you know, our network oh, people knew that I'd been a CFO, um, and that you know. So, and, and since then, I um, some opportunities to come through agencies as well. But but it start, just started with word of mouth. I could do a two or three month or six month contract um, and then get back to the business. Um, so they're, they're hard because I kind of, I do sort of four days of work on a CFO role, which is a six day a week job. Mm. <laughs> and then try to do four days a week on my startup in the last three days of the, the week. So it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, so six months at a time is about yeah. as much as I can handle. Uh, but it does, it, it, it helps us continue to build the business um, to the point where we're, we can attract the right investor because attracting any investor is not the right thing. What we're looking for is the right investor hmm. that will help take us the business at the right price. Now we're not currently in a cap raise, but obviously we will we will um we talk to people all the time and and so looking for those opportunities where we can take that business to the next stage um but having demonstrated to them that we we can we can do a pretty good job we just money does help yeah (laughs) money does make a difference in the end especially with tech what what makes you um 
choose not choose the CFO as the business you do? What what makes you so passionate about tech, or you just want to see if you can pull it off? Or what's your? I do love tech. Um, you do love you know, tech. I use my CFO skills, but I also do the marketing, um, which I'm learning how to do marketing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I do some of the product definition. I, I, I manage the product team for a while now. My co-founder manages the product team. So there's lots. Of, there's so many different roles that you do. I like the variety of role. I've always been in pretty much all my permanent CFO roles were in mid-sized companies where mm. I could get involved in lots of different things. I was never the CFO that only does sort of the accounts. That was, that you know, accounts was always a small part of the role. And so I've always, you know, the whole business has been interesting to me. So that was taking all those skills and now I do even more. So I do, I'll, I'll do the accounts one day, the next today I was working on um, sales navigator getting, Oh yeah, old sales navigator. Yeah. Get old sales navigator getting getting you know getting stuff into our CRM system. You know, working through that, and then um, I do use my hands. Sorry. Oh, you can smash. Yeah, um, you can swear uh, too if you want. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm. There's a whole, you just whole different just yeah. a whole different story. <laughs> I swear a lot. I get told off. Yeah, I haven't changed that. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So so CFO. Yeah, what's that? CFO in itself is not a business. For me, building something was important. Building a business. It's, it's, I've always wanted to build a business. I was just trying to find out what that business was over the years. And, and it was very hard to, to build a business and have a career and have kids. Yeah, so yeah. it did. The kids are grown up. They're 22 and, and 25 now. So um, they they don't take as much of my time anymore. Mm. And, and so I can devote more time to this. It was, it was, I don't think it was something I could have taken on, um, as well as wanting to be a good parent. Yeah, um, there's just, there's only so much you can take on at any time. Like, hypothetically, we'll move off of this and, yeah. and conscious of your hustle. So we're almost done now. Um, like, CFO is a business in the sense of you understand how it works, and then you and you become a CFO recruiter. That might destroy your soul, and the idea of it sucks. So you might not want to do that. I'm just curious because that's just feeding itself, and you're making money. And you know that you got this business partner that has the tech. There's no reason that couldn't integrate with the way you deliver what you do, and it's part of a a package to help develop these companies better. What stops you from going to the thing that pays you the most money? I assume it pays you the most money, or does the other one pay you the? The, re- the reality is that it, it um, safe space. If we, we if we get it right, if we get it right, um, the, it, the building a company obviously is better than just having a consulting job. But so, why not make that a company? Because you can't scale it. You can't scale a consultancy. The way you can scale a product um, that's on. So once once we implement, it just goes. So once we implement the tool, which is reads and logs emails into the right place, um, we don't have to touch it. So we're going on to the next one. So you can't sca- you can't scale the number of hours. I only have twenty four, um, and everybody only has twenty four. So a consulting business doesn't scale the way a product business does. So the ability to turn this into something monolithic is is much ah, better so you have a big you have a big we have big big aspirations or what what's your thing so um so we we um read conversations um primarily in email conversations and we get them to the right agent to answer and make or, or make them go away because about most places uh, about 20 percent of questions that go into a contact center actually can be answered quite simply with automation the rest of it needs somebody to look at it but we'll get it to the right person so they can make sure that their teams are uh, aligned with the types of questions that that are coming in um and or and providing the agents with with the answers or automating the answers so really depending on on the uh, on the environment um, we also just analyze the questions. So we're working on um, a number of opportunities where our partner does a voice-to-text translation. We read all the text and we make sense of it and feed it back to the company with the sentiment. Was somebody upset with what was happening? Um, and, and you know, 
you know, what, what kind of topics are people asking about? And we're getting deep down into the into an understanding of what the what the topics are, so they can fix problems at source. Mm. So you, you'll often get some, you know, the way the anal analytics works right now, it's often quite high level. So, you know, somebody will send in a complaint and you go, well, it's a product problem. Well, what exactly was it? Um, and it will, you know, we will drill down into the types of problems at a very at deep core of what the questions are so they can actually fix the right problem, not the, you know, the example we give is, is you know, somebody sends in a, a a query about or talks about on a phone call um, about they're only receiving half the shipment. Most tools will basically say, oh, there's a product problem. Um, you know, a more interesting, you know, more advanced tools will say, actually, there's a shipping problem. And so people will go out and go, oh, we've got a problem with our shipper. Actually, it's not. Actually, it's back to the plant because they're only putting, they're picking it wrong. And so it's getting that, that detailed analysis is what we can do. Um, with with the AI capability that we've built is to get deep down into what the problems are. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, I mean, like for me, I look at like a sales standpoint, that'd be quite useful to understand the sentiment of the conversation, identify uh, in an overview of how people are actually um, selling and in the different things that they're yep. using and what's working well and how to and bring that all together and making sure, you know, when things come in, they're prioritized correctly. It makes sense. Is it hard to... Um, Selling in New Zealand because there's not enough people, not enough agents. It is small. It is small. It, it is a very small market here, uh, and even when they're bigger contacts out here, the decision makers are in the U.S. And, or Canada. But the market sizes, that just there's four million, five million people here, right? Mm. Um, there's five million people in Vancouver. Yeah, no, I get you. So it's the um, it, it's a scale it's a scale issue plus where a lot of the decision makers are, a lot of the decision makers are for the for the larger customer services centers tend to be um, in the U.S. Hmm. and therefore you need to be there in that market. But the markets are so much bigger, and the and the and the win for them if they can get um, some automation and some better routing is so much bigger. So we'll 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 save them seventy five percent of the costs that they're they currently have for to get the right answer um, to the right you know back quicker. So it 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 does make a huge difference in even a small organization. But imagine you know multiply that by a hundred. You know a big eight or a big, a big contact center here might have a couple hundred people there. That's a small contact center in in the US so it's just it's a scale question it's just purely a scale question well I, it just listening to you talk I, I admire the aspirations and the things that you're gunning for and it's not to say you won't I'm just hearing a little bit of um, you know the old adage like crawl before you walk I'm wondering is there some low hanging fruit here in New Zealand that is possible just to get some cash flow like is it is it is it too expensive for people can't afford it or is it you can't do it for companies less than 20 people or what do you think what are you getting pushed back when you try and sell it to people so the problem it isn't a the problem that we're solving happens when you're at a scale okay um and so yes there are company there are companies here with the same problem how how big do they need to be like how many contact like, so if you if you have you probably need about a hundred agents okay, to make it start companies. making it, it it a big issue mm. um, to to need the automation. That's a really small customer service center in the U.S. Yeah. So uh, so so the um, it's more it is it's just a scale question and there's so fewer of them. So we have crawled. So we have done the. So we're in market. We have a product. Um, we we have a number of New Zealand and Australian customers. We got four, fifteen customers now. Hey, watch out! And yeah, um, we're probably we're serving some of those are outsourcers. So we're serving about fourteen hundred end customers through our product, mm. um, or end companies, not individuals, and end companies um, through the product. So it's it's there. It's going. Okay, okay. Um, and Good. and we're making like money. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's profitable. It, 
uh, profitable. It's making money. It's making <laughs> revenue. We're it's a startup. We're not profitable. Okay. Um, so we're um, so we've got revenue. We've okay. got we've got a good solid, okay, you know, cool. good solid base. Um, but the question then becomes: if you're going to keep, you know, would you the same effort to sell to a small business yeah, as to sell to a big business? And 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 really, you know, our aspirations are are big, yeah. and therefore. It makes sense to look at the North American market first, where even in, we've got an advisor in, in California and I've said was in Canada just trying to work out the market here. And he goes, you do know that there's as many people in California as there are in Canada. And there's as many people in Toronto as there are in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so it just it just becomes you know, growing a big business um, okay. just takes it takes market size and that's all it is. Is that's where the market is? Um, cool. No, fair. Hey, I'm, I'm just uh, winging you it. Challenge it. Yeah, just wing it. Yeah. So it is. It's a market thing. Um, the you know, it's great to have an ex company that is expert. We get um, support. Um, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise are supporting us to, um, in terms of advice on going to market. Um, cool. So that's great. Um, we've had a lot of support from Callahan as well because our product is quite. Um, it was ground groundbreaking. Um, we were doing AI before everyone was talking Chat GPT. We were doing it. <laughs> that helps us, but um, it's yeah. So it's um, we've been we've been doing some exciting stuff from an R and D perspective as well. Um, but the big markets are not here. Mm, fair. Well, on a dramatic conclusion, just because if you abruptly end, retention's better. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> You're done. Thank you.